What does flow mean to you? Flow is a state of mind, a state in which a person becomes fully immersed in an effortless and continuous progression. To me, the ultimate goal in jiu-jitsu is finding that perfect role with perfect and effortless flow. I'm Professor Hayden Martz, and this is the Flow BJJ Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Flow BJJ podcast. Uh, today we're going to do another origin story. Um, we're here with Professor Kevin Eastler and Blue Belt Aiden, and we're going to hear his story and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Uh, all right, guys. So, Professor Kevin, let's start off with uh, let's get your background prior to jujitsu. All right. Well, I grew up in Maine, up in Farmington, where I was born and raised, and uh, went after high school to the Air Force Academy. So I, I uh, went out to Colorado Springs, which is where that's located. And, you know, the first couple of years kind of just tried to survive. You know, military academies are not easy. Um, but, uh, you know, grew up in, up in Maine. I was involved in a lot of sports, mostly individual sports like cross-country running, skiing, uh, track, those types of things. Um, But I always liked kind of like messing around, playing football or wrestling with my friends and that kind of stuff. So I think that's what ultimately led me to jiu-jitsu after a time. But, but yeah, I didn't wrestle or anything in high school, uh, you know, officially. Um, Played a little bit of pond hockey, that kind of stuff. So just tried to do, like, all-around athletic kind of stuff, have fun. Um, And then... Well, I was at the academy, and uh, we had a good club sports scene. So they offered a bunch of different clubs and stuff. And I, there was like this one day where um, you could go into this hall, and each each club had their own table to kind of like recruit people. Like, hey, come join my club. And um, so there was a jujitsu club, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. I, I like jujitsu. You know, you, UFC. Like we had a new guy come in the gym today, right? And he's like, how do you know about jujitsu? No, I just watch UFC. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, exactly. so UFC was something I watched with my dad. Like we're talking like UFC one and two and, you know, the origins of UFC was something I would watch with my dad. And obviously that was impactful on me. Um, so when I saw jujitsu was offered as a club sport at the academy, I'm like, cool, I want to give this a try. Nice. And uh, it was more like Japanese jujitsu. Uh, cause this was 1997, 1996, yeah, 1996. So it was a long time ago. I'm an old guy. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that was before like Brazilian jujitsu was, was a good, a big thing at that point other than Hoist Gracie and, and that, but, uh, it was cool. My professor was a tech sergeant in the air force. He had lived in Japan as part of his service, uh, for a number of years, I don't know how many striped black belt he was, but he was uh, legit. Um, scrawny, wiry guy, but like, you know, I just remember if he wanted to do a move on you, <laughs> it was like nothing you could do to stop him. Of course, especially with the little to no training I had at that point. Um, so we did a lot of groundwork. We did some judo, you know, some throws, takedowns, and some weapons work, which was pretty cool. So yeah, that was my first introduction to jujitsu when I was what like 18 years old. How how long were you in the military for? So I uh, went to the academy for four years and then was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Air Force and spent another nine and a half years in the Air Force after nice. graduation. Nice. Yeah. 
any uh, where were you stationed or would you move around a lot? I did. So um, my first uh, my first assignment was actually in Los Angeles, California. And uh, so there's a little unique backstory. So I said I did track in high school. So I I actually uh, did that pretty competitively. And my dad um, got me into race walking, which is a, a track and field event that some people may or may not have heard of. But uh, so I started that in the youth track program in Farmington. It's an endurance event. So you start with like a mile and then eventually up to like 10 kilometers when I was uh, in high school. So that's 6.2 miles. Um, I got really good. I was on the junior national team and traveled all over doing that stuff. So when I went to the academy, I took a few years off, but then learned that the Air Force had this thing called the World Class Athlete Program. And what that means is they allow you to train like full time if you're good enough, uh, ultimately for the Olympics, right? So if you're like top whatever five in the country, they basically just allow you to do that as your assignment. So you're getting paid That's awesome. as an officer <laughs> in the military um, while you're training full time. So I'm like, hell yeah, I want to do that. Right. Like it's basically a professional athlete, essentially. Right. You're getting paid to train and to compete. Um, so I started training for race walking again, probably my junior year at the academy because uh, I had taken a couple years off. And uh, it was a step up to like the national level. And I started racing the Olympic distance of 20 kilometers. So. 12.4 miles. And, um, but I did pretty well. I, I started making really good gains. Uh, I think I placed like fifth or sixth in the country, uh, my senior year at the Academy and I qualified for the world-class athlete program. Um, so that was 1999 when I graduated, uh, obviously we're coming up to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, Australia at the time. Um, so I moved out to California. My, my official base was Los Angeles air force base, but I actually lived at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, California. Damn. Oh, really? Yeah, it was cool. I mean, so <laughs> that's and, awesome. And you got to think. So, so I was at the Air Force Academy, which is like the strictest institution ever, right? Where it's like you know, got to wear a uniform around all the time. Like you can't go out and drink, uh, for the most part. Like it's very, you know, very well controlled. And then. I get let loose in San Diego, <laughs> California <laughs> with a bunch of uh, other athletes. And it was a blast. So we trained hard. Um, there was a team down there of about, um, well, I think we probably had like 10 other race walkers that were living and training there as well. So we had a good team, which is pretty unique for race walking because there's seldom like a group of people doing it together. And then there were other sports there, rowers and um, there's like field hockey and a bunch of other events came through to train at the facilities there. And yeah, it was awesome. Um, so I trained and I ended up placing, oh man, this is, I'm embarrassing. It was top three. I was top three at the Olympic trials in 2000, but one of the secrets of the Olympics is not only do you have to place in the Olympic trials, but you actually, actually have to have a, a standard, like an international standard and for the 20 kilometer race walk, it's a time standard. So I had to get in a certain time. I had not made that. So unfortunately I did not get to go to the Olympics, um, which was devastating. And uh, so there was one last ditch effort race where I could try to make the time standard. And this was probably like a month before the Olympics. And uh, so my coach is like, you can do it, Kevin, you can do it. 
all my teammates were supporting me and I do the race and it was just not going to happen. Like, you know, I ended up dropping out. Like I was done. This, this, the season was over. I was, I was probably burnt out to be honest. And you know, there's a lot of details that I could go into around like what I learned from, from training and how I changed it eventually. But long story short, you know, I didn't have it in me to make the time that I needed. And so I remember walking off the track and I call my dad, like, you know, basically cry, like, I didn't make it. I'm not going to go, but I'm going to make the next one. I'm going to make the next one. And he's like, yeah, I know you can do it, Kevin. Just, you know, keep working hard. Your dad trained you initially? He did. So all through high school. And uh, there's an interesting story uh, of how he learned. So he was in grad school in New York City in the 70s. And he saw this guy walking around this track. And he's like, was he? watch him for a few days, watch him for a few days. It's like, I got to know what this guy's doing. Like, he's going around a thousand times this track. So he, he tries to walk next to this guy because the guy's walking. He can't, you know, the guy's going too fast. So he has to jog next to him. And he ultimately learns that this guy's name is Shaul Adani, an Olympic race walker from Israel. This guy had, uh, had competed in Munich and was one of the survivors of that uh, the terrorist situation that happened in Munich. And for those who don't know, basically uh, some terrorists came into the Israeli housing facility at the Olympics, took hostages, ended up, uh, there was a botched um, attempt to rescue the hostages and a lot of people died. Basically all of the hostage athletes uh, that were taken ended up dying in the rescue attempt. Uh, Really um, sad affair. So uh, Shaul was uh, lucky enough to get out before he was taken hostage. Um, And he was able to make a phone call and basically alert, you know, the authorities that there was a situation going on. And um, so he is uh, still alive, living in Israel today. He still does marathons and stuff like that uh, and was a big influence on my dad. Um, which ultimately led me and my sister to take up that event and for me to make the Olympics. So, uh, so yeah. for the people who might be thinking, oh, race walking, that's, you know, that's, that's nothing. <laughs> what, what sort of pace are you talking yeah. about? What was the time standard that you needed yeah. to meet? So um, essentially I had to average under six and a half minutes per mile for 12 mm-hmm almost 12 and a half miles. And this is walking. You've told me this before. Yeah. That's why I wanted to make yeah. sure you... We what are the this, rules so. in this? So you have to have one ground, one foot on the ground at all times uh, is essentially the main rule. There's one other rule about the forward leg. Uh, ha- the knee has to be straight when it touches the ground until it passes under the body. But essentially, it's that one foot on the ground at all times, which is the main rule, which distinguishes it from running. Because if you watch a sprinter, especially like most of the time they are off the ground with both feet. Like they're in a mm-hmm. what we call a flight phase, yeah. right? They're only touching the ground momentarily to, you know, um, propel themselves down the track. So that's the big difference. And the, the sport evolved from these walking races in like the 1800s and early 1900s where um, people would get together and walk from like one city to another. So really long distance and for some reason, and I can't explain it, it became popular back in that time. And, and these athletes were actually paid a lot of money 
to to walk from one town to the next and they would have uh you know a lot of followers who would watch them I, again i can't explain it i mean walking is one of those things that you uh, i struggle to find a lot of excitement in it now of course having raced at the olympic level and seeing you know some real battles between athletes at that point uh and i can appreciate it because i you know i did it but uh I can also see why so people f- would not understand. <laughs> so for the for the average person, I like you don't run into very many people who can run a six and a half minute mile. Like right. I don't know if I know anyone that can, especially for twenty kilometers. So you're walking six and a half minute miles for twelve yeah. plus miles. Yeah. How do you train that? Do you train like cardio? Do you just walk? Yeah. The whole so time um, for training. We would do like 60 to 80 miles a week of mostly walking. So like in the morning, I might go for like a, a 12 or 15 mile walk. And um, a lot of my training I did in Denver, which is at you know about 5,000 feet altitude. And I would average probably about eight minutes per mile for my training, which again is not like... I have trouble running eight minutes per mile now at yeah. sea level. Uh, so I'm not sure how I did that at altitude. For, but, you know, you just train your bodies. Um, and then often we would do like a light jog or some other cross training in the afternoon. So, yeah. Two, a a few a week. weeks back when you mentioned race walking, I remember seeing someone. I was at the Y probably 10 years ago and seeing someone race walking, yeah. practicing on the yeah. treadmill. And... I remember just like being in awe, like you, you can't understand like how, how it looks <laughs> until you've seen it. It's, it's yeah, aggressive. It, like it, It's unique. It is definitely unique. Um, yeah, a lot of, I mean, it, I, uh, I use the analogy of swimming, right? Because everybody knows that there are different uh, swimming strokes, right? And let's take, um, maybe the most unique swimming stroke might be the butterfly arguably, right? Um, the butterfly is not the fastest way to get from one end of the pool to the other, but the Olympic swimmers who do that do it so well and gracefully, and they've been training their whole lives to do that, um, and they can go extremely fast. And race walking is the same way, right? I I can probably get down to the end of the track faster by sprinting by running, uh, but when you're training your whole life for race walking, you learn how to do it really well and. Um, it becomes like its own technique. So, uh, it, it is unique. And it, I mean, yeah, when you're going six, six and a half minutes per mile, you have to be a little bit aggressive, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're moving. So, yeah. so, so you failed to make the 2020 Olympics in Sydney, you said? Oh, 2000, 2000, 2000, Olympics. I'm sorry. 2000, 2000 Olympics, yeah. And you tell your dad, you're going to make the next one. Yeah. So what happens next? All right. So. Uh, I go off and do my normal Air Force duty, which at the time was in space and missiles. So I moved from San Diego up to the mid-coast of of California, uh, Lompoc, California, kind of north of Santa Barbara. Beautiful area of the country, by the way. And start training for uh, a career in space and missiles, which is an Air Force career track. Um, so they're now actually have become the space force. Uh, but at that time the space and missile, uh, group did satellite launches for the air force. And also another branch did, 
control of nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missiles. And that's what I did. Damn. So uh, that's, the, that's the assignment I got after training was complete in California. And I was shipped off to Cheyenne, Wyoming, to the missile fields. Um, <laughs> and we have a base there called F.E. Warren. And surrounding F.E. Warren for essentially hundreds of miles are uh, ICBM fields, so intercontinental ballistic missile fields. So we would drive out to... Um, this location and there's a building and it's fenced off and you have to like radio in and say you're coming in otherwise (laughs) somebody will meet you with an M16 and then you go in the building and then you take an elevator for about I don't know 100 feet underground and that's the launch control center and you open up these big steel blast doors like you might see in the movies like in Terminator or something open it up uh, the crew that was down there, they get relieved, they go up top, you go in, you lock the door behind you, and you're down there for 24 hours. And you're controlling the maintenance and the security and the operation of, in our case, it was, uh, uh, we had 10 uh, nuclear missiles that surrounded our launch control center, so like in a spider web. And the purpose is like if, if there was ever an attack from Russia or whatever, like they might hit one of the silos but it'd be hard for them to hit like all 10. So it was about a survivability. And then there were five other launch control centers, each with 10 missiles. So we had 50 missiles in our squadron. And you're allowed to tell us about this? Yeah, this is all sort of unclassified, <laughs> I think. No, yeah. So, um, so it was sort of intense, right? Because uh, here I am, 20 years old, with enough nuclear firepower in my control. Now, fortunately, it's all very, it's very controlled from like the top. You need presidential orders and there's a lot of training that goes into it. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but I would have dreams about nuclear holocaust. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, sort of scary. So do you ever have any, uh, like false alarms or, or test drills that really like, um, so my first alert was right after nine 11 in 2001. So I wasn't down there when the planes hit. I was, I was sitting at home. But they went, I think, to... So, so the DEFCON scale, you guys might hear. So DEFCON 5 is normal. Like, everything's peaceful, no problem. And you go from 5 to 4 to 3 to 2 to 1. DEFCON 1 is like, oh, shit, nuclear war is imminent. Um, so I think they got to, like, DEFCON 3, which is pretty serious business. Like, halfway to, like, oh, shit, we're going to have a, a yeah. nuclear war. Um, so, uh, besides that, we always had drills going on where you get like alarms going off and there was a, there was a, a rack, a bed in the, in the launch control center. So like one, so you have two crew members down at a time and you're there for at least 24 hours. So like somebody can, you know, take a nap if they get tired or whatever. And so you're trying to nap and all these alarms are going off all the time. <laughs> you know, printers are printing like uh, alerts and, and sometimes you'd have to like take a- action based on what was happening. And it was pretty stressful. I'm not going to lie. I can lie. imagine. Pretty stressful. But I wasn't getting shot at in a foxhole. So there's different types of stress you encounter in the military. 
this was a different kind and um, not something I'd want to repeat. Yeah. But, and leading back to the Olympics, um, I was extra motivated to get out of that role, get out of that assignment. And so I started training again. And um, while I was kind of balancing my Air Force duty, and uh, so I was sort of part-time training. I trained in the mornings. I remember like, so we'd leave the base at like 8 a.m. to drive to the, to the launch control center. And you'd have all these briefings and other things that would happen. So I'd get up in the dark, 5 a.m. to go for a run or do some training before I would have to go out to my, uh, my duty. And, uh, but it, it paid off. I actually got in really good shape in 2003. I ended up uh, winning the national championships. I went to the world championships in Paris. Um, ended up getting 19th in the world. And I made the Olympic standard in 2003. Awesome. So awesome. like I sort of checked all the boxes that I needed to make the 2004 Olympics in, uh, in Athens. So, uh, so once I was able to do that and make that time, the Air Force allowed me to go back and train under the world-class athlete program again. So um, the year leading up to 2004 Olympics, uh, I moved down to, um, I was actually was in Fort Collins, Colorado at the time, and we ended up moving down to Denver, and I trained out of Denver leading up to the 2004 Olympics. That's a high altitude to practice at, too. Yeah, and I like that. So there's different theories. Um, sometimes we'd go up to, like, really high altitude, like closer to eight or 9,000 feet. I liked that mid-altitude of 5,000 feet because I felt like I could still have good intensity um, but have the benefit of, of altitude. And for those who don't know, because of the lack of or the, the less pressure in the atmosphere when you get up the altitude, there's basically less oxygen that your lungs can, you know, take out of the air, essentially. And so what your body does to respond to that is it builds up more red blood cells and, and oxygen carrying capacity. And so you take that capacity and you go back to sea level where the air pressure is normal uh, and you basically have greater oxygen carrying ability, more oxygen is available, and your performance is better. Did it feel drastically different when you went back down to sea level? Like, could, was it a noticeable benefit? Yes, for sure. However, um, there's a whole science behind it, and there's like an initial dip in performance when you go from altitude to sea level, and then it comes back up, and then it peaks out around like seven days after uh, you've left, and then the effects start trailing off again. So you sort of have to time it mm -hmm. right, but definitely you can tell a difference. Getting back to your, your military, um, so when 9-11 happened, you said you were in the military at yeah. that point. How did that change? Did that completely change your life in the military after that happened? Or um, Personally, no. I mean, I, I know a lot of people that did. Like A lot of people signed up for the military once that happened because they wanted to pitch in. Um, I'd say I was, I was already at that stage, right? I'd already gone to the academy. Um, my, my dad was in the Air Force, so I kind of had military uh, in my blood, yep. if, if you will. And so for me, it was just a reminder that we have to remain ever vigilant. You need a good deterrent force. You need a strong military. 
And um, so for me, it was just, you know, obviously a very tragic event, but just a reminder that what we were doing was important. Yep. What do you do in a 24 hour shift at the control center? Yeah. So we'd go down, um, change over with the crew, get the status update of like what's going on. Um, you do all these system checks to make sure everything works right. Because you need to control all of these missiles essentially. And, then there may be maintenance that has to happen. So you have to coordinate that with the topside maintenance crew. Uh, there are periodic security checks. So you have like 18 year olds with, with machine guns uh, that drive out to the actual <laughs> silos and check things out. There were alarms and things around the actual missile silos. So like, uh, I mean, if somebody like climbed a fence, it would trigger an alarm, but more often than not, like, you know, a bird would land on the fence or, or something else would trigger it, but we'd have to send out the team to go check it out. So you coordinate all those types of activities. Um, and then you just wait. So was there a particular reason why it was 24 hour shifts, just less turnover? Yeah, I think they, yeah, they, they figured out that was an efficient way. In fact, right after, um, so so you're there for 24 hours, you change over the next crew, you go home, and then you're back like two days later. And they figured that was a, an efficient way to do it. However, after 9-11, they had two crews stay out at the topside facility, or actually one crew would be underground in the control center, and the other one would be up top. So in the topside facility, you'd have like the, the kitchen crew, you'd have the security staff would stay there, maintenance personnel. So they're all like in the topside building. And then only the two people with access would go downstairs to, uh, you know, to the bunker, if you will, to control the missiles. And so during the immediate period after 9-11, they had um, one crew would be topside. And then I, I forget, I think we changed out every 12 hours or something like that. And that was for because they wanted everybody to be that much more on Chris, point. Yeah that much more sharp. Um, they didn't, obviously, you know, especially initially after 9-11, that we weren't sure the extent of other terrorist threats. So having uh, another crew out at the facility lessened the exposure of, you know, driving back and forth from the main base out to the control center. Um, so there was some operational security reasons for that. But uh, yeah, the typical, typical and normal way was just 24 hour alert. You and get, you're doing two or three of those a week. Yep. Yep. And then, so you come back the day after your alert and you get to rest that day. And then the following day, you typically have some sort of training on security or emergency war orders or some way that, you you know, you have to do your job. And then the next day you'll be back out in the, in the missile fields. So it was, it was pretty intense. It was hard to train um, during all of that. So that's what, I kind of, I think made my performance in 2003 that much more special was that I was able to perform at that high level despite yep. all of the tra of the military duty that I had to do at the same time. Awesome. Yeah. So military Olympics and then somehow you end up in jujitsu. Yeah. Does that yeah. Happen? So as I said, I had my first taste of it in, uh, 1996, 97 when I was at the Academy uh, fast forward, um, 2008, I race in, uh, the Olympics at ba in Beijing 
And so you were in back to back Olympics. Yeah, so I, I competed in two thousand. I'm gonna pull this stuff out of you because you're too humble. Yeah, two thousand four <laughs> in Athens and two thousand eight in Beijing, China. But by two thousand eight, my body's getting beat up. I mean, you know, all that training, all that time on, you know, on my feet. And so I hang up the shoes after the race in Beijing, and, um, and now I got to find something else to do, right? I, I got to find some other way to fill that kind of physical fitness need. And, um, and so I start training at gyms uh, in New York, and only when I was, so, so okay, I forgot to mention, so I got out of the military, right? I finished the Olympics, I hung up my shoes, so I retire from the sport of race walking, and I leave the military at that point. Ready to move on and get back to a more normal life. So I thought, so I uh, got a job with General Electric, which is where I still work today. And so I moved to upstate New York, uh, to Schenectady, New York, and start working there. and every now and then I would go to our GE training facility in Crotonville, New York. So this is closer to the city, um, and there's some good jujitsu around there. And I would train um, whenever I was down there, which would be like maybe once a year. I'd go down and, and train with these guys. And I was a white belt and um, wasn't really getting any better because I was only training like very sporadically. So I still had sort of, you know, I was getting exposed to it, um, but not getting better because I was only training every now and then. And then uh, we end up moving to Boston for another role with GE. And my daughter at this point is... Is there anywhere you haven't lived? I've, I've <laughs> man, so wow. I, a lot of places. In good places, yeah. too. <laughs> Paris. <laughs> so we, we go from Schenectady to New York, uh, sorry, to, to Boston. My daughter is of the age where she wants to start trying sports. She's like eight or nine. And uh, I talk her into judo. I don't know who talked who into what, but, but she wanted to do judo. And I'm like, I love judo. It's a great element of uh, combat sport. Uh, it has great ties with jiu-jitsu, et cetera. So she starts doing judo. She does awesome. I'm, I'm doing the classes with her. I get to like green belt or something. Um, and obviously, there's a, a ground game element to judo. So I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get back into the, like this jujitsu thing. And uh, and we move again. Okay, so we were in Boston a year. Then we go to Ireland. Okay, <laughs> so so I moved to we moved to Ireland uh, again with GE, another role with GE. And um, and we joined judo club there. And uh, the funny thing about Ireland is. The closest judo club was about, it took us about an hour, a little over an hour to drive there through these narrow back country roads in Ireland. And if you've ever driven in Ireland, like if, unless you're on just the main freeway, like the roads are super narrow and it takes you forever to get somewhere. So we did that. But then um, like the second year we were there, my daughter's like, I don't want to drive up there anymore. She wasn't competing as much as she had been when she's in Massachusetts. Um, it just wasn't as fun for her. And so there was a jiu-jitsu club closer to where we lived. And so she joined that. And they, it was like a kids-focused club. So 
while she did that, I started training at, we were in Limerick Island. So I started training at Limerick BJJ, which was downtown Limerick, Ireland, uh, kind of legit. And, um, I think they had an affiliation with like Gracie Baja or something. I don't, I don't know, but there's like legit, you know, ties to all the big names that we know today. Um, so I started training there a couple times a week and that's kind of my entrance back into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu with, with more gusto. And shortly thereafter, we move to Houston. <laughs> so another move. And I, I joined. Like he's going to move in like six months. <laughs> yeah, <that's sad>. uh, <laughs> And I joined, <laughs> my daughter and I joined Gracie Baja nice. out of Katy, Texas. And I'm still a white belt because, you know, I've been training a little bit more, but haven't been training enough to, to level up yet. And we start training a lot. My daughter competes. I'm training four or five times a week. And that was my kind of st- from there on I was hooked consistent consistent wow. consistent and um before I left there they they gave me my blue belt so we were there about a year and then we moved to Greenville South Carolina and I joined Alliance BJJ in Greenville and that's where I was for the last five years and where I ultimately put on my black belt awesome did you ever compete at all I did um a couple of times yes, in the Olympics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I, when I was in Greenville, we had an in-house tournament. So I think I was blue belt and we had an, like a sub only in-house tournament. So that was probably my first jujitsu competition. I had, I had done some judo competitions also. Um, and then I did the IBJGF, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina open as a purple belt. How'd that go? Uh, it went okay. So that was my first like real legit competition. And uh, you guys know this, like when I roll, I'm sort of like slow and measured and I like to take my time. So I've sort of always been like that. I'm not super explosive, but you get into, and Hayden, you guys know this, you get into an event, you got five minutes and the other guy wants to win as badly as you do. And it's like an explosion and adrenaline dump. And that five minutes goes by so fast. And um, so for me, that was an eye-opening experience. I think my first match, um, a guy did a fireman's carry on me. I ended up taking his back and stayed there and ultimately won on points. And then the next two, I won by decision. So it was, you know, close. And you never want to win by decision. I mean, you want, if you want to win, you'd rather do it by points or better yet, by submission. If it goes to a decision, then it essentially becomes a toss-up. But I was able to win the next two by decision. And then the championship match, I lost by decision. So uh, it, was, it was good. I got silver in my first event. But um, I walked away from that thinking like, man, I got to change my, if I want to compete, I have to change my training to be more explosive, to be like, you know, to be more focused on five minutes. Uh, I didn't do that because my focus wasn't competition. It was really just, you know, more to learn the art and to have fun and to get exercise. So I didn't really change much of what I was doing. but a lot of my Greenville Alliance teammates were competition focused, so I would help them train. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that was the last competition I did. So that was probably two years ago. How often did you train? A week. Six times a week, five to six times a week. Yeah, it was pretty pretty consistent, and uh, it it's hard. I mean, it's hard. It's a grind, and you'll hear that from pretty much anyone who gets to be an advanced belt in jiu-jitsu is, you know, not every day is fun. Um, sometimes you have to drag yourself to the gym and grind through it, but that's what pays off. That's what allows you to get into bad situations and know you can survive. Um, and I was rolling with Philly Joe, uh, Joe Gazzardo the other day, and I was just rolling out of a move in some way, like, and he's like, you have no fear. I'm like, yeah, because I've been in these situations a thousand times. Yep. And even if you catch me in that transition, I know I'm okay. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to freak out. I'm just going to go to work. Um, and that's what that time on the mat allows you to do. And it only comes with repetition. And, and even time. if you don't get out, what's the worst that happens? Yeah, so you, you tap, tap out, out and you start over. Yeah. So what? It's just training. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. And so... so Tell us a little bit about uh, your previous school where you obtained your black belt at Alliance Greenville and your professor and uh, teammates there. Sure. So I was lucky enough to be able to train under Rafael Josendo de Santos. So he's from Brazil originally, moved to the U.S. Uh, probably eight, nine years ago. Um, the owner of the gym, Billy Fletcher, was into jiu-jitsu he was traveling down to atlanta from greenville which is about an hour and a half and training with hakare the kind of u.s master of alliance um the head professor and they worked out over time to bring hafa up and lead the gym lead you know be head instructor at greenville alliance and uh we're lucky that happened because he's a fantastic instructor uh very technically sound and so he runs all the classes there. Um, and we had the ability to train uh, lunchtime, early morning, uh, late evening, because that was his full-time job. So between uh, Hoffa and then the other assistant instructors, you know, we had a lot of classes that were offered so you could get in there. And a lot, some people go two or three times a day. Um, at least for a short period until they get too beat up because that's hard. <laughs> you can't That'll do that. you down yeah. really, really quick. Really fast. But it's also uh, a good way to get good fast if you can stay healthy. But um, So, yeah, the first year I was there, I was training probably three times a week, two to three times a week. So you started there at Blue Belt? Yeah, that's right. And I, I don't know, somewhere along the line, I just transitioned to like going every day. I think with my work schedule, I had um, less travel with work uh, for whatever reason. So I was able to be home more consistently and train consistently. And then I'm fortunate enough with GE that um, in my role, they, they give me a lot of flexibility. I work from home now full time. And so I can set my own schedule. So I was doing a lot of uh, noontime training. And so I could just go every, every day at lunch and just made it a habit. Uh, eventually put on purple and then brown. And as I was leaving, um, I was really fortunate that Hoffa awarded me my black belt right before I left to come here. What That's was all. your favorite belt? I think, 
um, I think brown belt because as purple, like you're still finding your way. You, you, you know, you might not have that go-to move yet. There's still a lot you're learning. I mean, and don't get me wrong. You're always learning that never stops. But I think once you hit brown belt, you sort of like, you found your niche to some extent and you can work on that and you're comfortable enough in your A game that you can go try something else if you want, but then you always have your A game to come back to. So it's sort of a, for me, it was a, a, a good belt. And to be honest, I could have stayed there for another three years, right? I mean, it's just, uh, it's a good place to really refine your game and for me it was so far favorite belt what are the practices like under an alliance school um so we would start with some drills or warm-ups kind of like what you guys do you know shrimping and um arm drags and those types of things or we do uh, a pair where one guy's like doing knee cuts or something to warm up go into technique go into like specific training where you get in a position and one guy get, tries to get out of it, another try, guy tries to finish it, and then live rolls. And practices were typically two hours long, if you could say that long. So yeah, a lot of rolling, a lot of hard. Friday noon class was like an hour and a half straight rolling. And Hoffa would pair you up based on your ability. Um, and so he would pick your partners for oh. you. And there would be days, many days, where uh, as a brown belt, I was only going against other brown belts and black belts for 90 minutes straight. And so that was pretty intense. So for perspective from our students, how big of a school was Alliance Greenville? I think we had probably 200 students. And at any given time, you would range from a handful for maybe a lunchtime class, no gi, Maybe you'd only have four or five. And to a Friday, you might have 50 people on the map. That's awesome. Yeah. And did you tell me once before you had, there was 19 black belts there? Did you, I don't, am I imagining that? No, I think you are. No, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how many black belts there are. It was, I don't think there were 19. So that's a number you probably heard somewhere else. Uh, but I think at this point, I was, I'll have to go back and look. I think I was number 17 for Hoffa, something like that. I, I could be getting my number wrong. He just promoted two more. Um, See, 19. I knew yeah, I heard so that somewhere. There, maybe you're right. You're doing the math <laughs> in the background. You remember better than I. So you, you might be right. Um, but there so were really high Was there any there. specific uh, people that became like your top training partners that you just gravitated towards and worked well with? Man, every, everybody there uh, was really top-notch. So, like, we had our brown belt crew that would be training at lunchtime, and there's probably six of us who would go there regularly. And it was just those guys, just day after day, grinding out with them. And some of the guys would, uh, it'd be an even battle back and forth. Other guys would be like my, you know, kryptonite, where I just couldn't, you know, couldn't get what I wanted on them. Um, but that was a good thing about Hoffa sort of like pairing you up is that you got exposed to a bunch of different people every class. 
So you never got to really settle. Every time I pair people up, it always has good results too. You know, that's, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and it helps protect, like you get newer people or lighter people, especially if they're training for competition, you don't want, you know, a lighter person necessarily going or like the heaviest guy in, in the class. Would he have high belts go with low belts? Or yeah, was it just within your color? Uh, it depended. It depended. But it was, he did a lot by weight class. Oh, okay. In fact, when we would do the specific training or positional training, however you want to call it, he would usually break it up by uh, 180 plus, 180 pounds plus. And then may, he might have, depending on how many people, he'd do like a, like a 160 to 175 and then like 160 and below. Very specific. Yeah. I completely agree with that. More so than belt level for yeah. drilling. I think size yeah. is super yeah. important. Yeah. So we'd get like that white belt who came to an advanced class or, or like a new blue belt who was like 190 pounds and he would be in with like eight brown belts <laughs> and black belts. <laughs> and you're like, day. sorry, dude, it's going to be tough for you today. But you know. that's how you learn, to be, to be honest. I mean, at first you just survive. You try not to get tapped out. Um, you get your defensive game and then... Once you develop that, you start to be able to go on the attack. And that's just the way it goes. So how did the conversation go? Or maybe there wasn't one. Did did Hoffa know you were moving when he gave you your black belt, but he wanted yeah. to do that anyway because yeah. he knew you were ready? Or how did that work? Uh, honestly, I think, I think it would have been another six months before I got my black belt had I not been moving. Um, he knew I was moving, so I let the guys know, you know, a few months in advance that I was going to be moving, and um, and I I didn't expect like I was like maybe, but I, I don't I don't think I'm ready, but maybe because I'm leaving, and then the day at class was just a normal day, like normal training, um, nothing special. I, I'm looking for him like is he hiding a belt somewhere. <laughs> He ended up he ended up having my belt on him. He was had to tied it on himself. So like <laughs> <laughs> deceit. Um, so he at the end of the class he goes through the speech of like you know, uh, I'm gonna miss Kevin et cetera. He's been a great partner et cetera. And then it seems like it's wrapping up. Like okay that's it thanks guys. And then he pulls the belt off him and he's like I'm like oh. so yeah it was it was special but. But honestly, I mean, I mean, I don't think anyone is prepared to get their black belt, really. It's always a surprise. Uh, you never really feel like you've earned it. But uh, I do think it would have been another six months had I been still training there today. But even with that, I'm super grateful, obviously, that he, he gave me the black belt. He had enough confidence that I could carry that around and, and represent the Alliance name. Um, so it means a lot to me. What do you say to the people that truly don't feel like they're ready? There's always going to be that syndrome where you feel like you're an imposter, right? And I was, I think I just read something online to that same effect. Um, trust that you're being given the next stripe or belt because you've earned it. And there's always going to be a period where you feel like you're breaking it in and that's fine. Um, in fact, one of uh, one of my best friends at the gym, he's, I think, a two-stripe black belt now, maybe three. He's like, hey, let me tell you, for the next, like, three years, <laughs> you're going to feel like you've not quite 
earn this. You're going to feel like giving back your belt. You're going to like, you not feel comfortable. Like you're going to get tapped by whatever purple belts, brown belts, blue belts, you know, you're going to feel frustrated, but don't worry. That's part of the journey. So you just have to trust that you've earned it. Everybody has good and bad days and you just got to grind through it. It's not magic just nope. because it's a black belt. Nope. Not at all. Nope. For so the you, record, I think that's absolutely the right move on Hoffa's part to give that to you before that puts were he to not do that that puts both you and whatever school you move to in really tough spots right you know right because you are 99% of the way there but now you have to sort of start over right you know yeah and that's yeah so I, I think that's good and yeah, for sure. Now, if I, and I, I was thinking about that after, and I was, at first, I was like, man, like, I don't, I don't deserve it. I should be another six, eight months, or a year, or whatever. But I thought through that, and I'm like, well, it's special because I've been training under Hoffa for five years now, and I've really developed under him, and it means a whole lot to me yep. for him to, to award that to me. So, I, I made peace with it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you wear it well, so I wouldn't be too worried Thank about you. it. Thank you. <laughs> um, so now you're in Maine with us. For those who do not know, how does this school? How drastically does this school differ from what you're used to? Um, well, let me start with the similarities. So great people, great head professor, <laughs> um, clean facilities, and let, let me tell you, if you haven't trained in other places it's always hit or miss. Like you go to some places and it's, you know, sort of like, uh, not the cleanest and brightest place. Like you're in a dingy gym sometimes. Not, not the case here. Very well kept. Um, which I love. I, I you want to train in clean, new, fresh facilities. It's just yep. makes it so much better. Um, I think the, the difference is we just had like more people because we lived in a, region with millions of people yep. essentially and in that part of upstate South Carolina. So when you have that population, you're just going to have more people, but otherwise that's it. I mean, there's no other real magic. I mean, we got, we had a high level black belt from, from Brazil, which is always nice, but, uh, the fundamentals of jujitsu are being taught here, just like they're being taught in Greenville. So I love it. And, um, and now that I've been able to teach, I, for me, that's my next evolution for me is to transition from trying to die on the mats every day to doing more teaching. And it is addictive. And I think you knew this, Aiden. You didn't yeah. tell me. Like watching people get better yes. when you teach them. And for you, when you're coaching them in a competition, wow, there's a, there's a lot of satisfaction for yeah. that. I would almost rather coach somebody to a victory than have a victory myself like to see them have success because you helped them right you know they put in the work they they did the required work that you told them they needed to do right but it produced the results right you know and that's it's really special for sure yeah and i i had no idea i really had no idea that it could be that rewarding so that's cool even as little as seeing you, you know, you teach a move at a class and then like a week or two weeks later, you see a blue belt hit the move right. in a live roll. And like, <laughs> you yes. can point to that and be like, you did not know that last week and you just <laughs> hit it in a live roll. 
Absolutely. Even something as small as right. that's super rewarding. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, I've been super happy here. Um, I really love the opportunity that you've given for me to be able to come in and train and, and start to teach. And yeah, everybody's great. Oh, we're thrilled to have you, man, for sure. Thank you. So, how, oh, yeah. go ahead. How do the styles differ, the, the technical styles differ? Well, I mean, Hayden was just commenting. We have very similar styles, actually. So a lot of, there's a lot of similarities. Um, Hoffa is, he's really good at floating. So he'll like do a lot of float passes. Whereas actually I do a lot of pressure. Um, so even within that gym there, there were different styles, but so he would teach a lot of that floating type stuff. Size wise, how, how big is Hoffa? He is like five, nine ish, something around that probably 170. Hmm. So any, grew up surfing in Brazil and can like have that movement where he can float and he does it really well. Um, he loves that quarter guard too, though, like that I play mm-hmm. with kind of making sure he doesn't let the guy get the underhook. He kind of goes to half guard and then quarter guard and bumps him with his knee. And I learned that from him. Um, so he likes to play that game too, which is so strange. Cause I play that exact same game yeah. and we had never met. I know. Before. I know. <laughs> That's why I'm saying like the, the, the styles in jujitsu, even given that geographic diversity, and you know, you see the same things. And I, I'm telling you, like we had what I said, 200 people in Greenville, and there were some similar. Like you, you pick up things that your professor teaches you, but ultimately, I think everybody develops their own game based on their personality, their body type, their athleticism, and that's what's great about it because they can evolve something that's totally different from what's being taught generally. So yeah. that's cool. And you, you really start to create your own game, maybe purple belts and above. Some, for some people, it's earlier. But yeah. if I taught the same exact thing to the same exact people for two years, they're still all going to have completely different jiu-jitsu games after that's right. two years. It's, that's right. it's, it's, it's one of the things that makes it really fun, right. honestly. Because right. if everyone was the same, played the exact same game, it would it would get boring pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. I will say that maybe the one exception is like the, the leg lock game. I think there are some gyms that obviously prioritize that. And you can tell when you're rolling with people who have prioritized a leg lock game. Um, we, we definitely got exposed to it at Alliance, but it wasn't, it wasn't the go-to. And in that lineage, they did a lot of foot locks like where Hoffa was brought up. But his philosophy was he wants to control the upper body, and that's what he liked and was very good at. Is very good at. Um, he can do he can do foot locks, leg locks. He can get out of them. Like you'd be hard pressed to catch him in a leg lock ever. Uh, but he focused more on the top. So I think it's it's hard with newer people because they see this leg lock game at the height of its glory right now you know and if you're if you're a a white belt or a blue belt just new to jujitsu and you're seeing like this this is the meta right now yeah but it wasn't always that way and it won't always be that way you know so it's it's hard not to get tunnel vision when you're new absolutely like wanting to dive into leg locks and ignore the the fundamentals but the fundamentals still those are must-haves yeah you know absolutely 
And I've found generally my leg lock defense game is improved because I can wrestle up to the top. So, I mean, you have somebody control of somebody's top half of their body and they can't easily get a leg lock on you. Or if you can transition from them having your leg to getting up top, yep. uh, that's a good way to defeat a leg lock game. So yep. fundamentals. Absolutely. That's what it comes down to. If we could just drill that into everyone's head first, <laughs> pass the guard first, then you can learn to learn leg locks. That's right. All right. I think uh, that's going to wrap it up for today, guys. Uh, any final questions you got, Aiden? Or? All right. We yeah, will see you cool. guys. Uh, see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Remember, you don't need to move fast. You simply need to move forward. Life presents all of us different obstacles. It's easy to give up. However, get up, smile, and put one foot in front of the other. Everything works out. I promise you. Tom DeBlas.